Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Hey, what's up, everybody? We are super excited to have Rich Goldstein on with us tonight for Seller Roundtable number 25. I'm Andy Arnott with my partner in crime. Amy Wees. And uh, yeah, we're going to get to it. So uh, Rich, uh, if you could tell, uh, tell our listeners uh, a little bit more about yourself, um, you know, maybe you, you can go as deep as you want uh, or uh, keep it as brief as you want. But, you know, if you want to go into, uh, you know, where you were born, uh, maybe some fun stuff growing up, uh, where you live now, you know, past jobs, college, what got you into to Amazon, all that, all that kind of fun backstory. Okay, well, let me see if I could give just the right amount of information so that it, it makes sense out of what I do today for a living. Perfect. Uh, so I'm from Staten Island, New York, and I attended a pre-engineering high school, so which, which set me off on a path toward being an engineer. Um, I went to college for electrical engineering, but at the same time, I started a business. I started selling supplies to salons, nail salons and beauty salons, like selling them the equipment that they use and the different supplies. So I'm studying electrical engineering, but I'm, I'm, I'm finding it to be very interesting, very interesting to be involved in business. And at the same time, I'm heavily involved in sales because I'm just walking into new places and, and selling myself and getting them to start buying from me. So, so as I'm doing this and studying electrical engineering, I'm realizing that, well, I'm finding out about the realities of being an engineer. And that is that once I graduate, uh, I'll be working on the same project day in and day out for years at a time and not just designing some type of cool thing, but designing some little tiny piece of a cool thing. So uh, at first I thought, well, maybe I'll change my business to, uh, maybe I'll change my, my major to business and I'll go in that direction. But then I learned about patent law, which involved being an engineer and being a lawyer. So I finished studying electrical engineering and went to law school. I became a patent lawyer and now I get to work on something different every day. Yeah, I love that. So uh, it's, uh, it, it keeps it interesting. I, uh, my backstory is, is uh, you know, something like that, but uh, mine is, so, you know, I, I was a Top Gun kid, you know, uh, Top Gun was a big movie when I was a kid, wanted to be a, a fighter pilot, all that fun stuff. Went to college to, to be a pilot and I, and I got my, uh, my, my private pilot's license. And then uh, once I did that for a little bit, I decided that, uh, no, this wasn't that fun. This was like being a, a glorified bus driver. <laughs> Same kind of, uh, of instance. So, right. You don't uh, get to do those barrel rolls like in Top Gun. Or... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. When, when you're, when you're flying for, you know, the airlines, you're going from A to B, you're, you're, I mean, you're still doing some fun stuff, but in general, it just, turned out to be not my cup of tea. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, it. that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not going to ask Amy what she did in the past because that, you know, that's a, we, we had, we had to do a whole episode on that. <laughs> yeah. Got it. <laughs> so, so, uh, Rich, what, uh, I, I know that, you, that you, you know, you do all kinds of, uh, patent trademark, just IP stuff, but, yes. um, what made you get into, um, the Amazon uh, niche specifically um, was there, was there something that you, did you see an opportunity there? Uh, what does it, was it just something that interested you? Like what, what kind of got you into, into the Amazon uh, space? Got it. Well, it's funny. I've um, been interested in Amazon for a very long time. Um, I remember in 1999 when, um, when 60 minutes interviewed Jeff Bezos and they basically um, just confronted him with a whole bunch of skepticism and said that, 
Um, like you, you realize that in order to, um, to be profitable, you need to sell every book that's being sold today on the planet. And of course, he's just smiling because his vision was way bigger than books. Um, so been interested in Amazon for a long time, but from afar. And I guess when I first got into the space with regard to, uh, to, to uh, patents was uh, a few years ago when um, Steve Simonson invited me to come speak at his mastermind, Catalyst 88. And I spoke at his mastermind about patents and just realized that I was surrounded by people that really needed my help. So I've been working with entrepreneurs for the last 25 years, but it's the past few years that I've been working with Amazon sellers more and more to the point at which um, it, it's, it's become a very large po portion of my, my business these days. Yeah, that's outstanding. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was actually on uh, Steve's podcast a while ago and then I, I finally met him in person. I think I'd met him previously, but this uh, last seller con, it was nice to actually, uh, I feel like this, the, I don't know why, maybe it's because I've been in the space longer now, but I, I got to meet a lot more people this time around, which was, which was really fun, including yourself, uh, how we got to uh, chat at, uh, at top, top golf and, uh, and uh, yeah. And you know, the helium 10 party. Yeah. Yeah. That as well. Yep. Yeah. Well, so, I feel like this past Celicon was very social. It was super social. There were a lot of events happening around it. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of evening events. I had an event and, and, and a lot of other people and companies had different things happening from beginning to end. And even, even after the event ended, there were still events happening. So yeah, I, I feel like it was super social. I feel like I, I probably added a hundred or so Facebook friends on just from that meeting. <laughs> and, uh, it was a great time for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I, you know, I, I always, everybody knows that uh, I make the joke how, you know, I'm, I'm one of those uh, guys who likes to lock myself in the room, room and code and, and watch movies. And, you know, I'm perfectly being okay uh, all alone. You know, I'm the, the introvert. Um, but uh, you really uh, have to try to try to get yourself to go to those events just because the, the networking alone is invaluable. I mean, you might meet, uh, you know, just a single person there that's going to absolutely change your business, change your life. Uh, things like that. So um, if you guys are, are on the fence, uh, you know, definitely go out uh, to some of these events, um, especially if there's, you know, local stuff like Rich was saying that there's an event, you know, uh, in his area. Um, you know, if you're, you're in a, in a generally in a major metropolitan area, there's usually meetups and things like that. Just go hang out with other sellers. You're, you're going to get a lot of great uh, information from that. I, I totally agree. And it, it's, it's really all about relationship. And so, just getting the opportunity to, to meet people that are doing similar things as you, you just don't know what opportunities will come from that. Um, so there's the learning and then there's the networking or put in other terms, really the relationship building and, and kind of the, just the ability to meet new people. So I, I highly recommend attending events as well. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't been to too many, but um, uh, from what I hear, SellerCon is one of the better uh, one of the better events. And I, uh, you know, I've only been to a couple other ones, and I would say definitely um, just because the sheer amount of people that go there. I mean, you're you're getting um, you know industry people, and you're getting tons and tons of sellers, and uh, you know, there's a lot of people who just like sit out in the hallway, like we did a mm -hmm. bunch during the you know during the if you you know because a lot of times if you've been selling for a while, you're you're not going to learn too many new things in some of the sessions, um, you kind of have to cherry pick them, but then, you know, the, the socializing and all that afterwards is, is where you get the real value. All yeah. right, Rich. So let's, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and prosper is another great one. That I've I not, recommend. Yeah. I've not been to prosper yet. That's definitely on my list of things to do. Um, I'll come this year. It's happening in March. Is, uh, is it in, is it in Florida, right? No, it's, it's in uh, Las Vegas. Vegas. Uh, it's in Vegas. Yeah. All right. 
Yeah, oh, I might, I might have to check that out. My my wife has a hard time with the three kids solo, so she said she she's put a ban on conferences until further notice. So <laughs> we'll have to see. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Yeah. So so Rich, let's uh, let, let's get into the the nitty gritty of of uh, of uh, you know why why you're into Amazon, which is um, you know starting out. Let, let's kind of get an idea of you know what are some of the big issues. What are the you know the most common things that, that Amazon sellers come to you for? Um, is it, uh, you know, they're having an issue or is it like, you know, I have this idea or, you know, kind of what's, what's the bulk of, of, of what you're doing? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's really three main things. So first of all, it's, um, it's when uh, a seller is on the receiving end of an IP complaint, when they have a listing shut down because they're told that they're infringing someone's intellectual property. So that's one. Um, second is protecting themselves to stop knockoff. So as they grow and as their business grows and they just begin to realize just how, no matter what you're doing, someone else will come in and start doing the same thing. So the extent to which you could differentiate, differentiate yourself and protect yourself can be the extent to which you succeed in a certain niche. So, so the second thing people come to me for then is just to protect themselves and, and, and do what they can to try and stop people from coming into their space. Um, and then last is um, related to that, but it's getting trademarks to get into brand registry. And brand registry is of course valuable so that you can stop other people from using uh, a confusingly similar brand. But there are other benefits as well that Amazon seems to um, lump in there um, that are only available to people that are in brand registry. So, um, so people often come to me for that because you need to have a registered trademark in order to get into brand registry. So those are the main things. Those are the main things going on that, um, that cause people to, to ring my phone. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And, and I, uh, I've been harping on this for years, but it's especially important now is, you know, if you consider yourself a serious, uh, business person, a, a serious Amazon seller, um, you know, having that trademark in place uh, early on is, is a huge benefit, like you said, not only uh, for the protection, but also because now you're getting things like brand analytics, uh, yeah. you know, extra advertising slots, um, uh, usually better support. You got uh, like Amazon just uh, rolled out uh, uh, zero, yep. um, you know, all these, all these extra things that really help, um, you know, and coming from somebody who started in 2012 when it was the wild west and uh, I had a Q4 where, you know, like 80% of my, uh, my listings were hijacked and I lost, you know, like $150,000, uh, net profit in a, in a short period of time. That's, you know, pretty frustrating. Um, so as frustrating as it, as it is now, um, you know, it's actually gotten a lot better, um, than it, than it used to be. So Rich, when should, um, should sellers or, uh, you know, not just Amazon, but you know, e-commerce, uh, SaaS, I mean, whatever, you know, somebody who's getting into business, uh, when should they start to think about, um, you know, patents, uh, patent protections? Yep. Um, you know, kind of what phase, because I, I know some people just kind of have a, oh, I've got this idea or, you know, I've got the sketch or, uh, you know, kind of what, at what point should they be calling, ringing your phone? Okay. Well, I say the most important th thing to know about when is you definitely want to, to handle the protection part before you launch the product. Um, and the reason is, and most people don't realize this, that once you launch a product, once it's public, once it's on sale, you immediately lose the rights to patent it in much of the world. 
Um, and in the United States, there's technically still a one-year grace period. So if you do launch and um, a year goes by, then it's game over. Still better to do it before you launch, but, um, but there is a grace period in the U.S. But the reason it's important to know this is because even in that worst-case scenario, the year goes, uh, can get away from you pretty quickly. And I can't tell you how many times people have come to me with a product that's just hitting a home run that's been on sale and they just ask me if, if, if I can help them protect it now because they need help getting it protected and I have to give them the unhappy news that it's too late. Um, and you know what, it makes sense. It makes good business sense that people are doing this. In other words, it's like when you're starting a business, you look to minimize costs, you look to minimize expenses and a patent could be a pretty big expense. And so, you know, it, it's re really quite logical to say to yourself like, well, you know, maybe I'll put off the patent until later and let me launch the business first. And then if things go well, then I'll handle the patent. And it's that thinking, which, which is great business thinking, but unfortunately is counter to the way the patent system works that gets people into trouble because they'll launch the product and they will have lost the right to China and the EU and if a year goes by, they'll even lose the US. So in terms of the when question, the most important thing to know is look into it before you launch because that's the time to file a patent application. Now here's the other side of it, is not every product should be patented. Not every product is it worth patenting. And so what you wanna do is you wanna at least make that assessment at an early point before you launch. You wanna figure out, hey, is this something that I wanna patent? Because if I wanna patent it, the time is now. But if I don't wanna patent it, then make the decision not to patent it and don't look back. Because then a lot of times what people do when they're launching a product and they haven't protected themselves and they haven't just made the decision in their mind like, no, I'm not going to protect it. What happens to them psychologically is they have one foot forward and one foot back. They have an opportunity to, to expose it on a really big scale and get some real headway in getting the product out there, but they're afraid to because they're afraid someone's gonna copy it. So if you do make the choice that you're not going to protect it, just go full on out and don't look back. Um, I mean, don't even think that, hey, maybe I'm going to be a little careful about how I roll my product out because maybe I'm gonna protect it later. No, you're not gonna protect it later. You've already made that decision, so move forward with everything you got. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and, uh, and, and, and that's a, a, an interesting point. I did not realize um, that internationally that once you're for sale, you, you can't get protection. I thought it was similar to the US. So on that same note, um, you know, a lot of times people are really, um, like you said, when they're starting out, they don't have a lot of money. Um, it's hard to validate that idea. So in other words, you know, they've got, um, you know, I got this, uh, I, I've got this new marker that has an eraser on the end and a little spray bottle in it, you know, or whatever. Um, nobody's done this before. Uh, but I just, I don't know if there's going to be a market for this. So spending, you know, five, 10, 15, 20, whatever it's going to take to get this patented uh, could just be a, a waste of money if there's no demand there. Um, will a provisional patent help with that? And if so, is that just in the U.S.? And uh, how do you see provisional patents fitting into the equation here? Yeah, that's actually a great example. And that is a place where a provisional patent application can, can help. So a provisional patent application 
is kind of like a placeholder for a utility patent. And we'll talk about what a utility patent is probably a bit later. But, um, but essentially, you file a provisional application, it establishes your priority toward getting the patent. Uh, as long as you file your full utility patent application within a year, then it will kind of mark that place in the sand for you and your invention. So, um, so the, the, and it's generally less expensive to file a provisional application. And let me just give you a little caveat to that as well. And that is that um, when people realize that a provisional patent application just gets filed and it doesn't get reviewed by the patent office, in other words, it can't be accepted or rejected, they say, oh, well, let me just like, write up a few paragraphs and file it as a provisional or they'll use LegalZoom or something like that, which kind of, in other words, they'll get a, a, a half-assed description filed with the government and they'll say, oh, I filed my provisional, I'm patent pending. That's true, but the, but the priority you have from that document is only as good as it is well-written. So uh, if, for example, someone else files a couple of months after you with a full patent application that was well-written, then basically they're, they're avenue of attack of getting past the fact that you actually file before them with your provisional is just showing how inadequate your provisional is. So essentially, um, this is a trap that people fall into is that they, they do a half-hearted provisional and um, then it's a false sense of security because you won't know that it's not good enough until it's too late. Um, but that said, it's still, even when you have a provisional prepared well, it's still less detailed and less involved than filing a full patent application, so it still will save you money. So for example, like when I'm doing a, a patent application, when I'm doing a, a patent applications for my clients, a provisional is about half the cost of doing full utility. So it's still a way to kind of get in there in the scenario you describe where you're testing the waters and you're not quite sure if it's worth spending all uh, the money involved to get the full patent filed. Um, and it's a way to get yourself um, established so that you can safely start showing people and talking to people about what you have. So yes, provisional and application is a great approach for that. Rich, I would love to know, um you know, when I was filing my provisional, we took the extra time to make sure that um, some of those extra details were in there. As you mentioned, some people would just go and just drop anything in there because right. what my attorney explained to me was that sometimes when you go to file, even though no one at the USPTO reviews your um, provisional application until your non-provisional is filed, um, what can happen, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way my attorney explained it is, if you don't um, adequately describe your, uh, your invention, and then you go and you try to file a, um, a non-provisional on the same invention, and there's a lot of changes and differences, you may have a problem with that. Is that correct? Um, yeah, well, the problem you have is that you can't just rely on that provisional date. So if there's some reason, um, if, there's, if there's something that happened between the time you filed the provisional and when you file that utility or non-provisional, as you're calling it, it's another term for the same thing, um, then you can't 
go back to the provisional date and say, but wait, um, yes, it's true. They filed um, their application before my utility, but I have this provisional. And it's like, well, yes, but it wasn't adequately explained in your provisional and a lot has changed, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. Uh, so you would lose your kind of first to file status there exactly. because of you you not including the necessary information into the provisional. Yes. So that exactly. That's why I was saying before. It's like the pri the priority you get is only as good as it is well written. So your ability to rely on it is only as good as the job that was done with that provisional filing. So Rich, it sounds like we need to, we need to go uh, look for uh, crappy provisional patents and swoop in, right? And, and just be big predators? <laughs> um, possibly. Let's, yeah. Are we going to talk about the black hat stuff or does that come later? <laughs> right. No, that, that's, the, the, that's the bonus. See, that's the teaser for after, after the fact, right? You're going you're gonna to tell us how to swoop in and be, be, the, uh, be, be the predators. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> we, we have a quick question uh, from Kevin. He's asking, um, you know, I know it's going to vary greatly by client, by product, things like that. But do you have a ballpark, uh, you know, cost-wise between like a provisional and, and, and a full patent, um, you know, kind of the range uh, that people can expect to uh, cost-wise? Um, yeah. I mean, with, with me, I would say um, a utility patent is typically north of 10,000. Even the simplest ones um, are around 10. Um, and, um, and I'd say most for Twelve to fifteen thousand for a utility application, and uh, typically a provisional is about half. Whatever it would have been for the utility, about half. So somewhere between, let's say, five and eight thousand dollars for a provisional. Okay. So to me, it almost it almost sounds. I mean, I mean, <laughs> if you, it almost sounds that if you're going to write a provisional, um, and you know, if you're already going to go that far, it almost makes sense to to me to to, to go for for the full patent at that point. Um, just my opinion, but <laughs> it could, it depends on the situation and, and possibly if you're doing a bunch of them, it makes sense to, um, and, and it depends on what you plan to do next. So if you're, um, let's say you wanted to establish them because you, you, you plan on going right to the wolves next, the big um, companies in the field and showing them what you have, then maybe it pays to get that provisional file. Then maybe if your track record is that, let's say one out of three of them, um, uh, turns into something that is going to be important, then maybe you, it's better to file three provisionals and pursue one utility than to, uh, so it depends. That's but, a great point. That's a great yeah. point. I never really thought of that either. And I, and I would say that the, you know, one thing to realize about provisionals is the only real drawback to it is that it just slows down the patent process. So once you file a utility patent application or a non-provisional patent application, it takes generally about a year to have the application reviewed by an examiner. Um, but if you file the provisional, um, it's not actually waiting to be reviewed until you file that utility. So whatever time your provisional patent pending, you're just slowing down the process. So you let 10 months go by and then you file the utility. At that point, then you have to wait a year to have it reviewed by an examiner to see if the patent is going to be granted. So that's the one drawback. Okay, interesting. So uh, Rich, any resources like, okay, say somebody's got a, an idea, uh, which you know I, I, I do every single day, and then I go and I find out that it's, it's uh, somebody's come up with it, and then I pound the desk in frustration. Uh, any resources, um, I know for me, I know of uh, Google Patent Search. Um, anything you, 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 any tips you have on kind of doing your own research 
um, before reaching out uh, to you? Or do you think that's a bad idea? Um, because to me, it seems like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you probably got a lot of calls where you're like, oh, no, I've heard of this. <laughs> you know, like, you know, oh, this, is an, this is an old idea. You know, any way that people can kind of, um, you know, filter their ideas and kind of come up with, uh, uh, you know, a preliminary uh, go or no go on, on their idea. Yeah, well, Google patent searches is, is, a, is a great, it's actually Google patents, what it's called. Yeah, Google patent, patents yeah. or the, the, the address is patents with an S dot Google dot com. Um, it's a great resource and I guarantee half of your audience knows about it already and half of them don't. It's yep. usually the divide I find in any audience. Um, it's a great resource for a few things. So first of all, uh, to look up a patent if you know the patent number uh, or if you know the inventor's name. Um, it's very easy to find a patent under those circumstances. It's also a great place to look up a patent to see if it's expired um, because a lot of patents expire and once the patent expires, it's fair game. So um, Google Patents is a great place to, to start. It is not though the best place to conceptually search for an idea. So if you, you're looking for um, um, double-headed can openers, um, searching with words, double-headed can opener, whatever it is, is not likely to find you the best prior art. Uh, so what I tell people is if you search on Google Patents, it's great if you find the thing that tells you not to bother. But if you don't find it um, by searching through Google Patents, if you don't find the thing that tells you, hey, um, like, you know, this isn't new, you still shouldn't rely on that search. Um, really the best way to have a search done, it's called a classification search. That's how real patent searchers do the searching. Um, in, the, in Washington, in the patent office's system, that's really the most thorough way to do the search. Um, but Google Patents is a great place to start. And, and, and I think bring with you those key principles of patents expire. And so always look up a patent to see if it's expired. And once patents expire, then whatever is in it is fair game, which is to say that if you want to do exactly what the patent describes, you're free to do that. But you want to be careful about straying away from it. So you might find a, an example uh, of like the basic concept of the product in a patent that's 30 years old. And, and then you know that you could do exactly that. But maybe the ones you see on the market have newer materials. They have some new features to it. You have to be careful about that because you don't know that, that those features aren't patented. So with regard to, though, just the basic concept of what you find in an expired patent, it's fair game. So, um, so it pays to uh, do that type of research. Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, SellerSEO.com and AmazingAtHome.com.